whatever your job is in the hospital, you're connecting to something bigger than a 15 or 20 or $30 an hour paycheck. You are connected into a mission that is improving care and helping to fulfill our mission of making communities healthier. Welcome to the VOCA Podcast, where we help you build resilient faith at work. I'm Dr. Chip Roper, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Ken Kennard. Hello, everyone. And Sarah Evers. Hello. This episode features our conversation with David Dill. We recorded it on May 13th, 2021, and we're delighted to include him here on our podcast. Sarah, tell us more about David. David Dill is the president and chief executive officer at LifePoint Health. And in this role, he's responsible for the development and oversight of LifePoint's strategic priorities and organizational growth. So he's advancing the company's mission and strengthening its culture enterprise-wide. He joined LifePoint in 2007 and has served as the executive VP, the CFO, the president and COO before becoming president and CEO in 2018. Now, under his leadership, the company has expanded its footprint to 88 hospital campuses with revenue growing from $3 billion in 2009 to more than $8 billion in 2018. And his leadership has enhanced its focus on quality and patient safety. David and his wife Ashley live in Nashville and they have two kids, one in grad school in Denver and one in undergrad in Philly. And what I like about this interview is that David talks a lot about company culture. And you know, in our Career Navigator program, we coach people who are in between jobs. And when I ask them, what are they looking for in a new job? They often point to this word company culture as something that's really important. For some of them, it's the most important factor. It's the reason they left their last job and it's what they're looking for in their next. So every company wants to have a good company culture, but how do you know that a, a company culture is really healthy before you work there. You know, they all say they're a great place to work, but what does that mean exactly? So one thing I like about this interview is that David actually illustrates one way that company culture is defined and revealed by making leadership decisions during a crisis. He has to decide what to do when the shutdown threatened the life of the company and it had 60,000 employees on the payroll. So I'm looking forward to discussing that with you guys after the interview. Thanks for joining us. Um, what are you thinking about that opening discussion? Just, you know, it's, it's not even to vaccinate or not to vaccinate. It's even just, can we talk about it? Yeah, you know, it's, it's so interesting, uh, Chip. We have, uh, first of all, I'm really excited to be here and I look forward uh, to this discussion. And I have spent the last 14 months living through like everyone else and, and spending so much of my time talking about COVID being in the healthcare business. It's uh, it, it's going to be exciting to start talking about the future, and hopefully we can get into that discussion you know, as, we, as we go through the next 20 or 25 minutes, and I look forward to questions at the end. Uh, it, it's just so interesting. We, we have vaccinated you know, probably 75% of our people, but even being healthcare providers, and I'm, we'll, we'll talk probably a little bit about my background. I'm not a, a clinician by training, uh, but we serve hospitals, and we're in and out of hospitals, but yet still only 75% of our people are vaccinated. So on one hand, I'm excited that that many, uh, you know, that percent of our workforce is vaccinated. On the other hand, uh, we still have a long way to go. And uh, it, it, today, there was, as I was in the office, there was kind of buzz in the office about the new CDC guidelines that that uh, you've referenced. And so things are changing right in front of our eyes. 
and uh, and it, it's 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 really interesting. But uh, we have been back in place for some time, and uh, it's almost just kind of like the expectation is virtually everybody in our office is going to be vaccinated. But it is weird. Whoever you know, I saw in the poll there are a lot of people that what it's awkward, and it really is awkward. Uh, nobody has a vaccine vaccination card or a passport with them or a tattoo on their arm to say I've been vaccinated. Uh, so we are still working our way through this. We are going to get through it, uh, but uh, we are in that awkward phase right now. Yeah, sounds like it's some fairly universal. Well, tell us a little bit about LifePoint Health. What do we need to know? Yeah, so uh, uh, Sarah, uh, in her introduction, she shared a little bit about our company. We, we're an investor-owned for-profit provider of healthcare services and hospital services. We own... Uh, not just the uh, you know not just the real estate or manage, but we own uh, the hospitals, and so we have 80 plus hospitals in 28 states across the country. I think one of the uh, one of the real unique characteristics of our company is we are in small, small to medium sized communities around the country. So we don't have hospitals chip in communities like Atlanta or New York or Chicago. Uh, but we're in outlying communities. And, and that makes, uh, it actually is what's made uh, managing through COVID very interesting because it very much is a kind of a family feel, if you will, uh, of, of, of caregivers, nurses and doctors taking care, not just of people and not just of patients, but in many cases, their family members, uh, their kid's school teacher, uh, their next door neighbor, and uh, it's what really makes uh, the mission of our company so important to me and makes the company unique. We have over $8 billion of revenue. Uh, we've grown significantly. And I think we're well positioned as an organization to continue to grow well into the future. It's really interesting. I mean, is, is what percentage of hospitals are for profit versus nonprofit? Yeah, probably roughly speaking, uh, about 20% or so of the hospitals around the country are for-profit hospitals. Uh, about 80% of the delivery care is not-for-profit. I don't really even like talking about kind of for-profit and not-for-profit. Uh, really, the only difference is one group pays taxes and the other group doesn't. I, I, I call it kind of a tax-paying entity and a non-tax-paying entity. And so being the only hospital in our communities, we're taking care of every patient, regardless of their ability to pay, that walk through our hospitals. And so, you know, we talk, we talk about our company, our mission, the size of the company. In most of our communities, uh, we are the only hospital in town. Uh, and as a result of that, we're the economic engine of these communities. It's typically the biggest business in the community. Uh, it's the largest employer. It's the biggest taxpayer. Uh, we are also uh, investing an enormous amount of capital each and every year, whether it's in new equipment or facility upgrades, but most importantly, recruiting new doctors to the community. And in most of our communities, when we recruit an oncologist or a cardiologist or an orthopedic surgeon, these are the most highly trained labor in most of the communities and the economic engine that that creates, not just life-saving therapy, or life-changing therapy to patients, but also the economic engine. So our mission of making communities healthier, it's not just focused on healthcare, Chip. It really is making communities healthier in a broader sense. And that's the role that we play in these communities. I, 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 that makes sense to me. I had a front row seat to this and I served on a, not a 
nonprofit community hospital board, and we actually elected to sell to a for-profit chain because they could bring in the resources to bring in the staff to provide the kind of care that we really needed for our community. So yeah, uh, it, it makes that makes a lot of sense. Well, you you are hopefully we're at the tail end of COVID, or at least uh, the, the 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 acute season of it. What's it been like to lead this large network, thousands of employees, all these communities? What's it been like to lead through this season? You know, the uh, it, it has been uh, just a, a really fascinating last year, and the mission of our company, and we're a very mission-oriented company, even though we're investor-owned for-profit, uh, we are a very mission-focused company, and, and I come back to mission in virtually everything that we talk about, and so the mission of making communities healthier has never been more clear to me uh, than it's been over the course of the last year. I've been with LifePoint for 14 years. I joined the company, as Sarah said, in another, uh, in another seat with the company. I have an accounting background, a financial background. I was the CFO of the company, now as the CEO of the company. Uh, but it's, uh, it's never been more clear in the 14 years as, as I've seen it here over and felt it over the course of the last year. Something else, it's uh, the timing of this. Uh, you know, God's timing is always, uh, is always right on time. We are just wrapping up uh, our Nurses Week celebration and uh, National Hospital Week. And I had a chance to do multiple videos over the last couple of days that were sent out to all of our caregivers. And while the mission has never been more clear, the work has never been more inspiring. And when I think about our nurses and our doctors and our caregivers around the country, uh, I mean, I wish I could show this group and, and maybe I could you know, send it to you and you could, you could post it out somewhere if you wanted to. But uh, it's, yeah. a, it's a little video of the person behind the mask and you can just feel the the uh, the the, uh, the pain, the loss of life, the call to duty. There's just so much wrapped up. When you see a nurse sit in front of a camera and pull off that mask, and you think about what he or she walked into, uh, it truly is remarkable. So the mission's never been more clear. The uh, the the uh, the work has never been more inspiring. And I learned a tremendous amount about our organization. I learned how resilient our team is, but also how tired our people are. So the work doesn't stop. So making sure that, you know, COVID may be over, but there's still patients walking in tomorrow, or COVID may be close to getting over, or we may not have very many COVID patients in our hospital. But their work didn't start with COVID, and it doesn't end with COVID. Uh, there's another full shift coming the next day. And so making sure that we are pouring into the lives of our employees. We have close to 60,000 employees around the country and making sure that we're listening to them, we're investing in them, and we are supporting them. Because you can tell even though they're resilient, and this is what they were called to do, this is the body of work that they chose, they're still tired. And, and, that, and that's where leadership does step in to not only recognize that, but to bring resources to bear. That's great. I love the holistic way you're thinking about your team and um, it's such a significant thing for sustainability. Um, yeah. Just, I think this is actually, this is pretty much the last question about COVID. So I promise. Oh, good. <laughs> but it's, 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 it's sorting through the noise because there's so much noise around this whole thing, you know, there's, there's, um, there's people that are, you know, there's the, there's a whole 
lock everything down, shut everything down, and everything got politicized. There's certain <clears throat> seems like you know we're we're Christians, certain Christian groups that are you know anti-vax, so this is a hoax. There's a North versus the South, and you know I I spent some time in Florida this this winter. It's like there is no pandemic here, and you know like how what's it look like to sort through the noise and make decisions as a leader based on fact. Well, regardless of your faith, and, and uh, I think we're joined by uh, a Christian view that has really guided me through, through this, and we can talk more about that a little bit later. Um, make no mistake, this is not a hoax. Uh, there was uh, just significant loss of life that happened. When this first started for us back in April, uh, or so of last year, we're in smaller communities. It may have come to New York in March and some of our big urban centers early on. It took, you know, four, six, eight weeks for it to finally permeate and spread into most of the communities that we serve. Uh, probably the most, uh, the most terrifying phone call that I got uh, was in late April of last year when um, you know, the state agency, the governor's office of the state of Tennessee said, we have a nursing home in one of our communities close to Nashville, just north of Nashville where we have a hospital. And we need to empty that nursing home out. And there's gonna be a hundred patients coming your way, a hundred individuals. Uh, and I don't like to think of them as patients. These are people, these are the grandmothers and grandfathers and step parents and neighbors, uh, real people uh, that, that need to be rushed to a hospital to put them in a safe place. And watching our organization kind of come to life and the resources that were brought to bear. And that played itself out community after community after community. And not to impress anybody with any numbers, but uh, we, we got up to probably 13 or 1400 patients that were in a, a bed on any given night in, in our hospitals. And, and so that started in April and we peaked out in January. So that is a nine month period I mean, the gestation period of a baby. I mean, so for the moms, you know how long that is. And so for, for nine months, the resiliency that it took, that we didn't know when the surge was coming. There wasn't a mathematical model that predicted how many patients that were coming in, but nurses were dealing with whatever came their way. And doctors were dealing with whatever came their, their way. And a lot of lives were lost. Now, the good news is since early to mid-January, we've seen our numbers decline. And you can really see our nurses. I'm gonna be at a couple of our hospitals tomorrow in Virginia. To I spend my Fridays uh, traveling around to different hospitals to thank our nurses and doctors for what they did. And tomorrow, I'll be over in Danville, Virginia, and Martinsville, Virginia. Some of your viewers may know exactly where that is, two really, really neat cities, uh, to thank them. So, you know, we can, it's politicized for sure. It's we all watch the TV channels, uh, but our nurses don't care about that. Our doctors don't care about that. It's taking care of the people that are in their hospital. So whether it's wearing masks or not wearing masks or vaccination or not, wearing, uh, not vaccination, washing your hands, social distancing, I think we are almost through the worst of this. I know the health systems are much more secure than we were 12 months ago. Our nurses kind of see and our doctors see light at the end of the tunnel, but it is real. And some people on this phone and some people on this podcast may have, uh, may have experienced loss of life. So it's for real. 
and we ought to thank all the caregivers around the country for doing what they did. When they left their homes, I don't want to get on my soapbox too much, but when they left their homes in March of last year, not knowing what they were going to bring back home to their kids or their parents that were living with them, they did it because that was their job, and, uh, and uh, it's inspiring. I'll just end with that. It's inspiring to see how passionate you are about it. So, and it's, it's, it's awesome. So thank you. Um, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, we, we live in a community in New York where a lot of medical staff live. And um, every night at seven, we all open our windows and bang pots and pans out the windows and cheer them on. And was, I love seeing those videos. It's just, it was very moving and um, having spent more time in hospitals than I wish I had uh, with a loved one. And they really make the difference. The nurses, especially doctors too, but the nurses, they really, they shape your whole experience there. They, they do. I was on uh, last Friday, I was in Paris, Texas and Palestine, Texas, where we have two hospitals. I told you we're in some small towns and uh, they're, uh, they're neat towns, but they're smaller towns. And, and just still seeing the outpouring affection that the communities have for their hospitals. Uh, you know, you, you, at some point you take businesses for granted or you take hospitals for granted, uh, but it has never been more obvious than it has been over the last year just how important and grateful people are of having high-quality care being delivered close to home. And, uh, and that's... Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep that moment. We're going to try to bottle that up, uh, make sure we don't forget about it, make sure we continue to kind of tell our story. And uh, the nurses deserve and the doctors deserve all the gratitude and affection that they're getting. That's great. That's really, I agree. Totally, totally with you on that. Um, well, let's rewind. I mean, this is, the, this is the present crisis, but let's just tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up. Um, huh. any, anything from... You know, your personal history that you think kind of prepared you for what you're doing today? Yeah, I grew up in a small town in western Kentucky. Uh, my mom was a teacher. My mom was uh, really the spiritual leader of our family. And, and my mom is, uh, is really my hero. Uh, my dad was a basketball coach. Uh, my dad was a great father. Uh, he, mom and dad still live in the town uh, where I grew up. Uh, one of the interesting things, Chip, is I really, you know, there's there's so many things that COVID, was, it was just such an inconvenience and, uh, you know, it was messy and, and, you know, I look back on it and there's so much of it that I didn't really care for. But one of the things that, uh, that was a benefit for me is my wife and I move around and travel around and just like a lot of people on this uh, tonight, uh, we're busy. I mean, we're always busy. We're doing something, a charity event or a fundraiser or traveling on vacation or going to visit people. Uh, this really allowed my wife and I to slow down and be able to spend more time with my mom and dad and her mom and dad. And I think we're going to look back, and for us anyway, uh, the last year has really given us opportunities to spend more time together and more time with them uh, as they are now in their uh, you know, late 70s and early 80s. And last, last spring, I was sitting on my back porch close to where I'm sitting uh, right now, and uh, spring was happening. And my mom is, as I shared with you, she is the spiritual kind of rock of our family, and, uh, and, and she just prays incessantly. I hope everybody has a mom that prays the way that my mom has prayed for me. 
And anyway, I was sitting back here during March and April, and all of a sudden the leaves started coming out, the flowers started coming out of the ground. Uh, uh, I'm staring out right now, plants were coming up, uh, pollen, yes, was coming as well. And at the end of one day after a busy day, Chip, I called her. I said, Mom, it is amazing. I mean, the blooms, the be- I mean, it's just beautiful back here. And uh, she said, son, she said, it happens every year. And my prayer has been that you would slow down just enough to enjoy it. And, uh, and so I did get to enjoy that. And so it, it's been one of those things for me. A lot, of the, a lot of who I am today, just like everybody else, is shaped from where you came from. And so growing up in a small town and growing up with parents like I did really shaped me into who I am. And it solidified uh, my faith. I stayed close to home for college. I graduated from school. And now I'm celebrating 30-plus years of marriage, or 30 years of marriage, uh, but 30-plus but years in my professional career uh, here, here, in, here in Nashville. But one of the things, because of where I grew up uh, in a small town, uh, that is what brought me to LifePoint uh, back in 2007, almost 14 years ago, uh, because of the communities that we serve remind me so much, whether it's uh, whether it's Galax, Virginia, or Danville, Virginia, or I can take you to 86 other places around the country, most of our communities are communities like where I grew up. And that's really what drew me to the company 14 years ago. And it what, it's what keeps me at the company today. And hopefully, knock on wood, uh, this will be you know, the last big professional thing that I do. And uh, we can turn, we can over turn somebody it over to somebody else at the right else time. Right time. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, you mentioned faith and your mom, your mother being the spiritual kind of leader in your family. What's what's the faith journey been like, and and how has faith played it? How does faith connect with your the way you approach your leadership every day? You know, I uh, we we are um, there, there's no question for people in our company uh, and people that know our company. They know there is a a faith based. Uh, I don't know, tone to our leadership. Uh, we don't wear it on our sleeve. Um, you wouldn't see it if you, if you did a search for our company. Uh, you really wouldn't see it anywhere until you were with our company for about five minutes and you came up to our seventh floor and the people that, that we have uh, that, that, that are part of this company, uh, certainly the executive team that I spend time with, uh, just incredible men and women uh, that are committed to their faith, committed to their family, and committed to their work. And so I have spent a great deal of time making sure that the people on our team, while we may not all wear our faith and share our faith the exact same way, that those those faith-based principles are rooted in us of doing the right thing, taking care of people. And Chip, I think it's a little bit easier for our company because of the communities that we serve. Uh, and so I think it, it does just kind of draw naturally a certain type of person to our company. But we are very careful that when we introduce new people into our senior most teams, that there is a uh, there's a consistency in how we view life, how we view taking care of people, 
and really how we view taking care of our family. Uh, and uh, it's just so exciting for me when I think about our probably, t- I don't know, 25, 30 people at the company, uh, their marriages, their kids. It's not all perfect and there's pain everywhere, but there's a commitment to family that's rooted and built into our whole leadership team. How do you, how do you uh, suss that out? I mean, do you, do you interview for it? Is it, I mean, there's probably certain things we can and can't ask, you know, in those formal settings. How, how do you, how do you sniff this out? Yeah. You know, we have, we have tools that we use and yeah. And, and so there's relationships that we all have, but I'm, I'm a big believer that uh, for those of you on the phone that, that may, may know another big company here in town, Hospital Corporation of America in town being Nashville, I'm sorry, uh, Hospital Corporation of America. They've been in business now for 52 years and started by the, the Frist family. And they've just been remarkable people uh, in watching how they've raised their company and raised their family uh, over, over now a couple of generations. Uh, Tommy Frist had, had a saying early on uh, of good people beget good people. Uh, and, and, and I do believe that. I mean, without sounding, you know, without being too prodful, I, I do believe that, you know, just good people beget good people and people want to be part of that and it's intoxicating. And so I think, yeah, we, we're careful. Uh, we, we weed it out. If we make a mistake, we, we, we change and we move on. But just it's, it's not as complicated as it seems. You know people. People want to be attracted to it. You know the people that you want attracted into your organizations, and we've been able to maintain that even though we've grown from two or three billion dollars a year uh, up to now where we are at a little over eight billion dollars a year. And, th- and that's our commitment. You know, we, we've talked as a management team. If we if we start losing our culture, then we're just going to quit growing. We're just going to stop, reassess, figure out what's going on, and then we'll grow from there. But as long as we can maintain that, then uh, let's 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 keep growing. And that's that's a great that's a great segue for our last uh, last formal question from me, and then we're going to jump into everybody's uh, Q and A. But uh, when you think about growing, you think about the future, you know, stewarding the lessons you've learned uh, from the last year. You talked about observing a great deal of resilience, but also the need to rest, you know, for your staff to get some rest and yeah. some respite. Like, what's the future look like? Where where are you headed? Yeah, so. Some of the things that we saw, some of the things that we saw through COVID, uh, Chip, were trends that we were already beginning to see. And like everybody else's business that's that's on uh, on this tonight, uh, it accelerated. COVID just accelerated a lot of trends uh, that we were already seeing. So significant investments. You'll see us make more investments in technology, in different ways to interact with patients and give them a different experience than just getting out of their car at the doctor's office, coming in and being seen. There's going to be a growing subset of our patients that will want to use technology to receive their care. And, uh, you know, maybe the skeptic in me when this first started, I was like, you know, that's for, you know, the, the 30 and below generation, 25 and below generation. They don't consume much healthcare anyway. Uh, they're going to use telehealth, but boy, with COVID, my mom was getting some of her treatments and some of her visits through telehealth, not because that's what she necessarily wanted, but she had to. And actually, she kind of liked some of it. She missed seeing her doctor, but she actually liked it because with an aging father that she's, my, her husband, now my, my father, uh, it was a lot easier for her to coordinate care using technology. So 
we will make significant investments and we've kind of pivoted away from COVID. I think now for us, the number of patients that we've seen have dropped. We're going to have COVID for a long time. There's no question there's going to be patients with COVID. It's not going to disappear, but it's going to be manageable. It's going to be just like any other respiratory illness, maybe a little more deadly. But now we have vaccinations. We have better therapies. We have better treatment patterns. We have plenty of capacity and plenty of protective equipment. Uh, I think we will still maintain a little social distancing and we'll wash our hands a little bit better as a nation. That's a great thing. Our schools will be cleaner. Uh, All those things are going to be good. Uh, So we've kind of looked past it and said, this is now just kind of baked into the business. Now let's position ourselves for future growth, whether it's growing the company through transactions and M&A or making strategic investments in technology to take care of patients a different way. So these trends are on their way. This accelerated those trends. And even in our smaller communities, we're going to see patients want to receive care and interact with the health systems differently than they did back in February of last year. You're on top of it. Well, that's exciting. And um, it's great. It's great to hear everything you had to share. And I'm going to turn it over to Sarah. And she, as our tradition, she gets to ask the first question. And uh, then we've got another poll to let uh, our audience steer the conversation and Ken will have that. So, David, thank you. You mentioned this quote that was inspiring to you from um, another um, hospital in the Nashville area. It was good people beget good people. And then you talked, um, you mentioned life point culture. I'm curious to hear what some of those elements of life point culture are and how do you ensure that that's replicated at these new sites? I mean, you, you, you grew quickly and now you've got to maintain it. So how do you ensure that culture is instilled in the new hires? So, you know, we have, it, it's a challenge and it's, it's always, it's a work in progress. I mean, 60,000 people around the country. Uh, our mission statement of making communities healthier uh, our vision is to create a place where people want to work and a place where physicians want to practice and a place where f- patients and families want to come for care. And so tomorrow, tomorrow in Danville, Virginia, I think now most of the companies on to me when I go, so they're getting better at it. But tomorrow, tomorrow, Sarah, in, in Danville, Virginia, I, I spend time with board members and doctors and our CEOs, and that's fine. I enjoy doing that. But what I love more than anything else is to go hang out with our plant operations team and our housekeepers and our dietary team. So tomorrow at about nine o'clock, I'll be with, I'll be walking through the hospital and I'll find myself in the basement with our plant operations team. And to be able, so, so part of it is I spend time, uh, you know, traveling on Fridays to spend time in our hospitals. Nothing beats that. So Zoom calls are great. I mean, all that's fantastic. It's made life a lot easier, but there's nothing like face-to-face interaction. But I'll, I'll be down there tomorrow talking to them about what do they do. Tell me about your job. And invariably, somebody in our plant operations team will say, well, Mr. Dale or David, I hope they call me David. I, I think they call me David now. You know, I, I have a preventative maintenance schedule, and my job is to go change light bulbs or change air filters or make sure the air conditioning is, is working in all these rooms. And when I can pause with them and tell them that really what they're doing is ensuring that when patients and families are in the hospital, maybe as scared of a time as they've ever had as a family, much less with COVID when there wasn't visitor, visitors weren't allowed. 
Uh, what you're doing is more than just making sure the lights are on. You're making sure that this is a place where that family chose to come for care. And you're keeping the hospital cleaner or safer or infection rates down. Whatever your job is in the hospital, you're connecting to something bigger than a $15 or $20 or $30 an hour paycheck. You are connected into a mission that is improving care and helping to fulfill our mission of making communities healthier. And so I have been telling that story for, I've, I've been the chief operating officer of this company and now the CEO of the company for the better part of a decade. And the number of times that I've told that story, and that just replicates itself. And now, now maybe tomorrow, maybe somebody's listening to this thing tonight that they're going to hear, hear me and they're going to know when David comes tomorrow, this is what I'm going to tell him. But... <laughs> Uh, that's what I spend time talking about. And sometimes it feels a little repetitive, but, but it's only repetitive to me. And it may be the first time that somebody has heard that. So I hope that message is inspiring to them to think bigger than just their job. And that's an element of the culture, not just good people begetting good people, but making sure that we are drilling into them each and every day. And they are drilling into me and it's never been more obvious than the last year with COVID. Uh, but I'm drilling into them what you're doing is much, much bigger than just changing an air filter in 10 rooms on the third floor west wing. Mm. I love that. I love how you're, you're pointing people to see a bigger vision. And um, I love that you're meeting with not just the doctors and nurses and the administration staff, but you talk about meeting with plant operations, the, the behind the scenes people who probably don't get that pat on the back and are forgotten when those vision moments are shared. I mean, talk about leadership in the trenches. That's, uh, that, is the, that is what I enjoy most. I've been fortunate enough to meet with so many interesting people uh, and, uh, and interact with interesting people, but when I am at my happiest at work, uh, it is when I am with those that, uh, that few people notice. And when Chip asked the question earlier, how does your faith inform your leadership? Uh, you know, I can take, we can all go back to our favorite Bible stories and scriptures and, and, and watching our Savior uh, interact with those that may not have been worthy. But He chose in a finite amount of time that those are, he only had a few few weeks and months and years of his ministry. Uh, he chose that's who I'm going to spend my time with, and I don't do it with cameras around. I mean, I don't care to do that. But I, I'm so excited when I'll get on a plane tomorrow morning and go to Danville. I'll be excited to meet with our leadership team and push them and ask them and talk to them. But man, when I can go to the dietary team and the housekeeping team and the plant operations team and spend time with them, that'll be the best part of my Friday tomorrow, Sarah. Yeah, you don't know. And that's where sometimes uh, faith comes uh, before sight. And it uh, looks like 64% of the poll results show that they would like to hear more from you, David, about your faith and how that's made a difference for you at uh, LifePoint. Uh, and as David Jennings suggests, maybe you could tell a story about uh, a decision that you had to make, uh, you know, that was testing your beliefs and values or maybe where you go to process difficult work situations when things are getting really challenging. Yeah, I, I'll, uh, I'll maybe give you, give you two things. Uh, one is about nine years ago, 10 years ago, when I became the chief operating officer of this company, 
Uh, it was the first time that I stood in front of a company, and at that point in time, we were we probably had 30,000 employees uh, versus the close to 60 that we have today. Uh, we have an annual meeting every year where we bring all of our senior leaders together, and there's a room of probably 500 people, and we we celebrate success, and, and we kind of celebrate the previous year, give out some cool awards, set the tone for the new year, and we have a big company dinner. Uh, and that's important to me, not just to get, you know, not just to have a big company dinner, but it's like a family. And, and, and we set it up in a way that really has kind of a family feel to it. And I remember before I went down to the hotel that night, we had met during the day, we finished about five o'clock. I went back down about 6.30 and I told my wife who went with me, uh, I said, you know what, we've never done this before at our company, uh, but, but I'm gonna say a prayer for our people. And, and I just hope, I told her, I said, I just hope it doesn't offend anybody. Because we have, it's a big company and we're in 28 states and we have people with all different backgrounds and I hope it doesn't offend anybody. But I want them to know uh, what's important to this company. And I got up there and right before the dinner started, it's a simple prayer, something everybody does or can do. And I did that consistently, we still do it uh, 10 years later. And not one person has ever said, why are you doing this? But hundreds of people have said, thank you. And you can tell what's important. So just something that's very simple that we do every night or every morning in your quiet time, uh, to be able to do that publicly and not to rub people's face in it or not to wear it on our sleeve, but, but just to pray for the travel of our people, the safety of our people and decisions that we're entrusted to make. Uh, so that is... Uh, that is something for me of how it plays out in our company. And now I have CEOs. Just, you know, Friday I was in our, in our hospital in Paris, Texas, and our CEO was, used to be a Christian uh, missionary, and he decided to come off the mission field 20 years ago and get into the hospital business. And uh, he said the prayer last year. And so now I turn it over to others to say, you know, I, I, don't, I don't do it anymore, but uh, I let them do it because it's a great opportunity for them to share their faith in front of their co-workers around the country. But where it really played out in COVID uh, was um, we had to make some decisions early on. We, uh, we saw a significant drop in our business. I mean, our company is, uh, you know, a little over $8 billion a year in revenue. And for that period of time between early March and mid-April, uh, when, you know, gosh, it was just, it was scary. Uh, our business had dropped probably, you know, some 30, 40% in revenue. So you take, a, you take a business that's doing $8 billion a year in revenue that's very stable and you have 60,000 people that are counting on a paycheck, all of a sudden that goes down to, you know, on an on a annual basis, somewhere like 4 or $5 billion. And there's just not enough money to pay everybody. So we had to make some decisions on what are we going to do in our people. And I'll never forget, uh, in, in early April of last year, I was sitting back here on my back porch and called our HR guy and Sonny. I told Sonny, I said, come pick me up. We're going to go on a ride. And I want you to take me to one of your favorite places in Nashville. And we drove up to this hillside outside of Nashville. And, and, and I looked at him and I said, we're not going to let a single person go because that's what's important. You got to figure out a way to make it happen. And so, but that was a scary time. I didn't know if we were going to be able to fulfill that for very long, uh, but we were able to. And we furloughed a few people. Uh, I, you know, we all took pay cuts for a period of time, but there's not a single person that lost their job. And that 
kind of that, th those quiet moments when you really get to what's important and what drives you. What drives me is taking care of our people. Uh, and we made a commitment that nobody's going to lose their job. I don't care how bad this gets. you got to figure out a way to make it happen. And we still, Sonny and I were just talking a couple days ago, we still remember exactly where we are, were up on that hillside in Williamson County outside of Franklin where we sat up there uh, right outside of his car and said, this is what we stand for and this is what's important. Let's talk about takeaways, guys. I love the way David humanizes work. You know, he talks about making communities healthier. He talks about patience, not numbers. And then he even goes beyond that and says, it's not really just patience, it's aunts, uncles, moms, dads, children, and grandchildren. And he just is making it very, very relational, very, very, uh, I'm using the word human, just real and respecting the dignity of, of each person that's part of the Weber relationships at LifePoint. His walk around management style uh, is another way that he, he lives this out. And you know we know from our research that the depth and breadth of relational bonds correlates with resilience. The more connection you have, the easier it is to bounce back from adversity. So David is cultivating those kind of connections up and down the chain of command at LifePoint. And I love that. Yeah, and the qualities of those connections, Chip, form what, what is really company culture. And one way to know what a company culture is like is to observe the leadership decisions that are made in crisis times. And when a crisis happens, it's, it's like two different values colliding and a leader is forced to choose which one of the two is most important. What has the higher value? So this interview gave us insight into how he made that decision when he was forced with the shutdown to, you know, people couldn't work. What was he going to do? Was he going to lay off the staff so as to prevent losing all that money? Or was he going to keep the staff on the payroll and ride out the storm? I'm not sure how it all will turn out, but it was a big deal. And that kind of decision can really shape the company culture for years to come. So what do you guys think about the decisions that he made? And what does that tell us about the culture at LifePoint Health? Well, I, I love how the culture was circling around taking care of your people to help get them through the worst. Uh, and isn't that what good leadership is all about? You know, forget the politics, forget the corporate hierarchies. Uh, you really learn about um, a company when it walks out its culture. And we heard David declare no layoffs um, and that leadership was going to take pay cuts to get their people through the worst. I mean, I, I love that. That's that's the kind of company you want to be involved with. That's the kind of company culture you want to live out. You know, for me, I loved hearing that story about how David became the leader he wished he had had, how he learned from past experiences um, so that the things that he experienced as a, as a young worker then shaped how he, how he leads now. Um, so he's done that work of examining his leadership story and determining what kind of leader he wants to be. Um, and that's shaping how he serves his people, how he leads his people. And, and even now, his leadership in the trenches, where not only is he walking around the hospitals when he visits, but he's growing his own awareness and decreasing his blind spot by hosting these dinners to learn more about topics he doesn't know a lot about. So I really love this um, growth approach to his own leadership. Well, these are all excellent thoughts and takeaways. We want to ask our listeners uh, or actually encourage our listeners to think about 
what you've taken away from this interview. Maybe there's ways that you can humanize the dynamics in your workplace. And even if you're not the CEO, you still have influence. You still affect the people around you. Or maybe there's some things you've learned about the culture of your organization during this crisis. And there's ways that you can contribute to making it better. Finally, just think about this idea of the leader you wish you've, you had. And there's always been, almost all of us have had points where we thought uh, leadership could be better, or frankly, we've been damaged by toxic leaders. How can that shape uh, a sense of purpose or mission for you in your work each day? You know, God has placed each of us in our workplaces, uh, to, and he's placed us there with a, a, actually a multitude of purposes. And think about that picture, that emerging vision of leadership that can come from being the leader you wish you had. Well, as we wrap up this podcast, I want to share another area of VOCA with you. Uh, much of what we talk about uh, is a career navigator process for individuals in career transition, but we also have a consulting practice. And one of the things that we're seeing in that consulting practice is that teams need to connect and build trust uh, in ways to intensify their connection as the pandemic drags on. And we provide three things that every team needs to grow in our typical engagement. We provide a framework, a way to think about how to do work together. Uh, we provide data that brings a third voice to the conversation and kind of depersonalizes some of the tensions and helps build trust. And then we provide a coach approach to training. You know, information is not transformation, but when you get to process concepts together with a bias towards action, it leads to lasting change. And we bake all those things into our typical engagement with a client. So if you're a part of a team, or a part of an organization that wants to be better together, sign up for a consult. Just go to vocacenter.org slash consult. Schedule a conversation with one of us, and we'll explore what that might look like in your world. So this conversation was recorded in front of a live virtual audience, and you can be a part of that audience. Register to join us and shape the conversation with your questions. Sign up for the next live webinar at vocacenter.org slash webinar. And we'll see you next time on the VOCA podcast where we help you build resilient faith at work.